Well, Gideon isn't exactly your Hollywood uh, image of a hero, is he? Uh, he, In fact, he's actually the opposite. opposite. He's much more the indecisive, timid type. Not quite sure if he's going to make it. He's one of of those people who wants every I dotted, every T crossed before he'll make a decision, and even then he's not quite sure if they made the right decision. You see the sort of person he is, in fact, right at the beginning of the story, uh, which we didn't read today. You might have to have your Bibles open if you've got a Bible at Joshua chapter 6, sorry, Judges chapter 6. Right at the start of the story we we read, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, just to make the situation clear, you need to understand that in those days, winepresses were in the ground, they're, they're below, below the surface. And so, if you got inside the winepress, you'd be out of sight, in, in Gideon's case, from his enemies, the Midianites. And so there he is, threshing the, the wheat, um, if it's wheat, um, and someone comes to see him. Now, before I go on to that, let me just say that, that it's encouraging to think that um, those of us who relate to Gideon as a, as a, as a timid, um, nervous type, um, is encouraged to know that despite his unpromising <coughs> material from which he's made, God takes him and he uses him. He makes him into a hero of biblical proportions. So we're going to spend some time now thinking about the process uh, through which Gideon was changed by God into a leader and saviour for his people. First of all, he has a personal encounter with God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Now here he is, he's beating out wheat in the, in the um, wine press because he's scared he might be seen by the Midianites. Uh, and the angel of the Lord addresses him as a mighty warrior. You can imagine what he thinks. What? (laughs) Me? I mean, you've got the wrong guy. I'm I'm actually uh, the youngest child child of of the smallest tribe in our our village. I'm not a a fighter. I'm not a, a warrior. I wouldn't know the first thing, which end of the sword to hold. I wonder if you ever feel like that. God asks you to do things. He asks you to talk to people about Jesus and you think, well, I don't know what to say. I'm I'm too weak to do what God's asking me to do. I I remember when I first started in a parish on my own, not very many years ago, about 25 years ago, and I felt like that. I mean, what what was I going to do? A little parish, I mean, I I didn't have much to offer. I'm not a, you know, I wasn't a great uh, orator. I, I I hadn't ever run a parish before. For some reason, I was prompted to look at the start of Joshua. The book of Joshua, chapter 1, God tells Joshua to be strong and of good courage. And it says it about, I don't know, three or four times in that chapter. Be strong and of good courage because God is with him. Now, that was a message to me, to trust God, to, to work to, to, to trust that God would actually work through my ministry. And it's the same here with Gideon. 
in response to God telling him he's with with him, Gideon says, well, if the Lord's with me, how come we're being oppressed by the Midianites? That's a pretty typical response, isn't it? How come, think, how come the world is like this if God, if God looks out, is, is looking after us, if God is in control? You hear it all the time, don't you? But you see, God is with him. And he does have a plan for their salvation, a plan that involves Gideon. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. And then, despite Joshua's protest, he adds, And I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Here's the first step in Gideon's growth into leadership. A personal encounter with God, where God calls him to a task, and where God promises to empower him for the task. We need to be careful we don't underestimate the importance of this personal call of God. The New Testament speaks often of the Christian having been called to a life of service of God. The New Testament speaks of God calling us to service of others, particularly of those in our own congregation, in our own suburb. But as we think about our own personal call to discipleship, let's remember the example of Gideon. See, the thing about Gideon's call is that the sort of person he was when God called him, now the personal attributes he possessed weren't the issue. Though, actually, the self-effacing nature of Gideon isn't a bad asset to have, it, is it? But he didn't have the natural prowess of a warrior. A couple of, a couple of others judges were. I mean, there's one, one later who was a mighty warrior and the people come to him and ask him to, to help them fight their enemies. Samson, yeah, which we'll, we'll look at next week, was this incredible strong man, but not Gideon. Gideon had no leadership qualifications, it would seem. And yet those very disadvantages were what, God, were what enabled God to use him to show forth his glory. We'll see that in a few moments. Now Paul says something like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the powerful or the strong. So this is how, so often how God works, isn't it? Remember what Mary said in the Magnificat. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones, but he's lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and set the rich away empty. So if you're unsure of yourself, if you're aware of your own failings, then you're just the sort of person that God might use to show his glory. Let him speak to you, tell you what he wants you to do. And ask him to empower you for the task. And then remember how God spoke to Gideon, surrounding Gideon's fragile ego with his divine ego. I hereby commission you. I will be with you. I am with you, you mighty warrior. But secondly, he has to start where he is. Before God sends him off to fight the Midianites, God gives him a task to fulfill at home. 
First he has to go and remove the source of idolatry that's present in his hometown. Remember how I said last week there's this cycle where uh, the, the people uh, rebel against God, then God uh, sends enemies to, to trouble them. He raises up, they, they cry out to God for help. Uh, that God raises up a, a judge to deliver them. The judge uh, rules for a while that he dies and then they go back to their old habits. Well, here they've gone back to their old habits. They've set up, set up idols in their home uh, for, for the family to worship. Even though they're followers of, of the Lord, they've been led astray by the pagan worship of the, of the people around them. The culture in which they lived had convinced them that to succeed in life you needed to make offerings to Baal and to Asherah, the local fertility gods. And so Gideon's family had their own family shrine. Wouldn't happen in our world, would it? Well, there are some cultures where we still have family shrines, but in our part, you know, us unreligious Aussies, not you, I don't mean you, those people around us, we don't have shrines to our gods, but we don't make regular sacrifices to gods in our culture per se, do we? But it happens nonetheless. Our gods are a bit more subtle, though. They're the gods of consumerism and affluence. The gods of pleasure and ease. The gods of economics and politics. Of sport and healthy living. And all too often Christians are as much caught up in those pursuits as the rest of the world. So it wouldn't hurt for us to look at our home situation, would it? from time to time to see if there are things that we need to clean up in our own backyards in our, prior, in our priorities and personal aims in our family lives before, before we go fighting the enemies of the Lord it wasn't easy thing, an easy thing for, for Joshua to do we're not, going to, we're not going to look at that bit of that passage, but if you look at it later, you'll find uh, he did it. He, he, he chopped down the, the Asherah poles. He, he, he destroyed the, the, idol of, uh, the idols to Baal. But the people were really upset. They came out in protest. And then what happens? Well, he does it in the, in, the, in the dark of night. He gets a few of his mates to come and do it. So, so you, you see that you know, he, he's the sort of guy who, who when, when you say, you need to go and evangelise your neighbours, he'll put a, a leaflet in their letterbox. <laughs> he's that sort of leader. But, but his father is suddenly awakened to his faith. And he says to the people, hang on. Don't complain about my son destroying Baal. If Baal's, Baal's a god, if he, if he wants to do something about it, he can do something about it, right, Cuddy? Let, him, let Baal worry about it. And then he says, if anyone wants to rebuild re, 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 um, this, um, this, this idol to Baal, they'll be put to death. He, he suddenly remembers where, where he comes from. The, the tradition of, of, the, of the people. His faith in God has been reawakened by, by Joshua's midnight exercise of, of faith. 
So God tells Gideon to start at home for a number of reasons. One is to clean up their own act before they start fighting their enemies. Another is to show him that he's not alone. That when he acts for God, others will join him. Because there are others who care about serving God, even if you haven't been able to notice it. Thirdly, it shows him in a small way that when he acts, God will bring him success. And here we discover the secret of the great heroes of the Bible. What is it that made them great? Was it their natural ability? Well, some of them had great natural ability. Was it their expertise that they learned from good teachers or mentors? Was it their training? I mean, these are the sort of things that that the leadership gurus today will tell you, aren't they? Some of them may be true up to a point. But none of them is the critical factor. Now in every case, the real secret is that God chooses to equip people in special ways for his work. Verse 33, Then all the Midianites and Amalekites came together, and the people of the east came together, and crossing the Jordan they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. Suddenly this timid, scared little man becomes a powerful leader of his people. He blows his trumpet and 32,000 men come out to fight by his side. And so what is it that makes the difference? You can see it there, can't you? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord took possession of him and empowered him. Now let's not miss the fact that this is the same spirit who empowers us today. Jesus told his disciples, nevertheless I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because they don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. And later he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're worried about whether you're up to the challenge of being Jesus' disciple, then take courage from the example of Gideon, the mighty warrior, mighty only because of God's mighty power, which enabled him to do great things. And remember that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people, individuals, from time to time. In the New Testament, God's Spirit is given to us for all time. He's always with us, empowering us. Well, then we come to what's perhaps the best-known part of the story of Gideon, the story of the fleece, fleeces. See, despite all he's seen, Gideon still isn't ready to go out and face the enemy. He still has this niggling doubt about the call of God. Now, it isn't that he doubts the call of God. Notice he, 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 he knows God has called him to lead his people. He's quite clear about that. He just wants some added assurance that he'll be victorious that he isn't walking into, into you know, a, a slaughter. 
isn't it good you don't have to be, be a particular personality type to be used by God? You don't have to have this you know, great confidence in your own ability. It isn't just those who are always sure of themselves that God can use. God equally uses those who need multiple signs, who, who are emotionally vulnerable, who suffer from anxiety and depression and self-doubt. All those people God can use. And so God gives Gideon the sign he asks for. The fleece is wet in the morning. And then Gideon says, well, God, can you just make sure I just, that wasn't just an accident? Can you do it the other way around? And, and God does it. He is so gracious to him, isn't he? God is such a patient and long-suffering God who bears with us in our weakness, who allows for our shortcomings. I mean, how often does he condescend to deal with us in a way that allows us to serve him despite our failings? At the same time, we need to be careful that we don't see this request by Gideon as a model for seeking God's guidance. I mean, you hear people talk about the need to put out a fleece. We're not quite sure what we should do, but let's put out a fleece and see what God says. The danger with that advice is it ignores the facts of this situation. You see, this is first of all, this is a one-off event. You don't see this type of guidance happening elsewhere. But second, uh, this is an Old Testament event. This is uh, it happens prior to Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus promised he'd send the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And so Paul in Colossians 1 prays that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So to suggest the use of the fleece as a normal method of guidance would seem to deny the work of the Holy Spirit who's given to us to guide us when we need it. And thirdly, the fleece wasn't actually a way of finding out God's will at all. Gideon already knew what God wanted. He was very clear on what God's will was. What he needed was reassurance that God could do what he promised. He wanted his confidence boosted by this supernatural act. So he's asking for the fleece was in fact a sign of the weakness of his faith. He didn't actually trust God. And the fact that God did what he asked wasn't to show how to determine God's will. It was, it was an example of how patient and kind can, God can be to those he loves. So don't use that as a model for seeking guidance. Rather, learn to trust God to do what he promised. That's why we have the Bible. Because over and over again we see God being faithful to his promises. Which is the point of the last step in Gideon's growth as a leader. Learning to trust God against the odds. How would you like to be Gideon in this situation? I mean, he gets ready to go out against the enemy of 32,000 men, already there to fight. And God says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, just before you go, you've actually got too many troops. Troops are actually too many to give the Midianites, for me to give the Midianites into their hand because um, Israel would only take the credit for themselves rather than for me, saying their hand has delivered me. Gideon and Israel need to learn an important lesson at this point. The victory they're about to win will be won by God, not by their own strength. So he begins to whittle away their numbers. 
First, he tells any who are scared to go home. They get to 22,000 of them. That's the, they're the honest ones. <laughs> they're the ones who actually admit their, 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 their weakness, their, their fear. But even then, there's 10,000 left. There's still too many, God says. They might still be enough to think that their own strength won the battle. And so he gets them all to go down to a stream and have a drink. And those who lap with water from their hands are picked, uh, sorry, lap the water with their, with their tongues are, are picked, while those who kneel down to the, to the water are sent home. Now, I don't think there's any, any significance in the different ways of drinking, except that more people drink kneeling down. The point was that God only wanted 300 of them in his army. Again, how would you like to be Gideon facing 10,000 Midianites and Amalekites with 300 men against 10,000? Humanly speaking, this is impossible. It's like the, you know, the magnificent seven multiplied by about 100. It's impossible. But you see, what mattered was that the victory be seen without doubt to be the result of God's action. And their war crisis at all. A sword for Gideon and for the Lord. sword for the Lord and for Gideon. As they fought, it was for the Lord they were fighting. It was, for the Lord who had give, it was the Lord who had given them the victory. In fact, that's the case throughout the book of Judges, isn't it? Always it's the power of God that brings victory. The judges are people who bring victory through God's power and who in the end give power, give God the glory. So what can we learn from this story of Gideon? Well, there's some obvious parallels, aren't there? We, we too have a battle to fight against God's enemies, against the idolatry of our world, against the powers of evil that oppose the church at every turn, against forces that oppose truth and righteousness. We too feel inadequate to the task. So what can we learn from Gideon? Or we can learn the importance of recognising the personal calling of God. Let's be aware that each one of us has been called by God to a life of discipleship, a life of service to the living God. Now that'll find its outworking in, in a hundred different ways. Every person will have their own personal uh, gifting and calling. But the call is just as real for each of us despite any differences there might be then we need to learn to begin where we are, to, to begin at home. So he is trying to fix the rest of the world if our own home is polluted by sin. Let's first remove the log from our own eye before we start looking for fault in others. Look at our own life. What sins do we need to repent of? What habits do we need to reform? Next, ask God to equip us for the task with his power. Ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit so we can know what to do and where to go. Ask for the assurance that only his Spirit can give. And finally, let's learn to trust God. It's a very important lesson that we need to learn when you're part of a small Christian church in the middle of an increasingly non-Christian, secular population. 
it's, an equally important, it's equally important to know it individually when you're living and working in a world that's opposed to the gospel, in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, in your local social club. The lesson to learn is this, the battle is his. We don't need superior firepower of our own when God is fighting alongside us. 300 people had no trouble defeating 10,000 because God was there. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is with us, who can stand against us? Recognise God's call. Clean up your own act first and trust God to give you what you need for victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do promise to be with us to the end of the age. We pray that you'd help us to be open to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember that you come to live within us, to empower us, to give us the gifts we need to do the task that you set for us. Help us to be prepared to take the risk to trust you to, to be with us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.